Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look at the new leadership at Boeing's defense business. But first, joining me to discuss the Biden administration's $773 billion defense budget request for 2023, a 10% increase over last year, that comes to $813 billion, including the Department of Energy and other accounts. That includes more money for research and development, new technologies, future platforms and weapons, as well as a new missile warning system and interceptor to counter ballistic and hypersonic threats. But the budget also includes controversial moves like decommissioning 24 ships, many of them either new or not exactly old, 33 F-22 fighters buying more F-15EX jets, and not enough F-35s and cutting back on force structure to boost acquisition and readiness. Joining us for their take on what this request means are Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute and Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, all right, Mackenzie, why don't you uh, lead us off? Uh, administration, uh, obviously, is a record-setting uh, budget request. It's the biggest uh, in history, obviously, acknowledged as the pacing threat, uh, while Russia is an important threat that we have to deal with. Uh, what did you make of the budget overall? What did you like? What did you not like? The defense budget is bad, but not for the reasons you think, <laughs> only because it has the appearance of being good, of being generous. That top line masquerades a budget that is littered with capability gaps left and right across the services. Well, I should specify across the Army, Navy and Air Force, the services uh, that Todd focuses on and capabilities, they saw very generous increases. Right. So it's not like this terrible bad news story across the board. But for those three services, it, it really, there isn't a lot of good news. <laughs> yeah, that, would, that would almost be supposed like, oh, well, you know, the Space Force uh, benefited. Todd, let me give you a bite at that apple, because obviously you are Space King, Space Marshal. I don't know what we should call you. <laughs> Go ahead. Take it I, away. I prefer, you know, first Space Lord. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to agree with McKinsey. Um, it, not everything was as meets the eye. I think that the biggest thing that's going to end up, you know, biting them in the rear end over this uh, are the inflation assumptions that went into this budget. They're completely unrealistic. They're based on economic indicators as of last fall. Uh, they have not been updated to reflect, you know, uh, more recent developments, including the fact that the CPI is running at 7.9 percent right now. Uh, and they've got assumptions in there that the FY23 level of inflation is going to return close to historical norms, uh, a little over 2%. Uh, so I think ultimately, you know, that disguises uh, how this budget, you know, is not as much of an increase as it looks like. In fact, it's a declining budget once you put in realistic assumptions about what inflation is likely to be in FY23. Uh, so I think that is that is going to be the starting point of the debate on Capitol Hill with this budget uh, is how do we think about inflation and how much are they going to need to add back into the budget? 
Um, uh, every uh, budget is a trade-off, even in a very big budget. Uh, couldn't agree with you more, right? I mean, there are some who say inflation will go to 10%. There are those who say, no, nah, I mean, we're, we're peaking pretty much and uh, it's, it's likely uh, to uh, decline. Let me, uh, Mackenzie, go to you, right? Let's, let's talk about what we or what you guys liked in this budget, and then we can focus on what we didn't like, right? Uh, obviously, inflation uh, was a problem, but Congress is going to have its say. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee uh, is on the record, as well as uh, the Senate and elsewhere, that there is more money in the offing. But I want to get to the congressional view in a minute. In this budget, what did you like? Because they did try to make trade-offs, right? They want to get rid of the A-10s, thankfully, uh, too, too slow of a ramp out. Uh, they're retiring F-22s. Uh, and buying F-15s, right? That's a little bit of a controversial move. What, what, let's start very quickly with what you guys liked that the administration did. Then we can go to what you didn't like and then look at what, what Congress is, is likely going to do about it. Start us off, Mackenzie. I liked the secretary's starting point, which was you know back in the winter in his negotiations with the White House, which was don't want to take pay raises and cost growth, meaning inflationary cost growth out of hide. Uh, now, to the point Todd and I both made already, they, their assumptions are terrible, so they're going to take it out of hide, ironically, but at least they tried not to. So that is something. He went to the White House and said, this is the, you know, the Delta with only to buy those two things, you know, the chain uh, mandatory pay raise increase and inflation um, cost growth across programs and priorities. And the White House not only gave him every dollar, but then, you know, increased the, the five-year plan roughly accordingly, eh, not great, but you know, at least it was something. So, you know, good on them for trying. <laughs> and, you know, they swung for the fences, they came up short. I'll give them credit for that. Uh, agree that they did make trade-offs and, you know, and, and of course we've been hearing these rumors for years. So, you know, space force, well, just space in general, uh, nuclear triad, uh, missile defense of all kinds of varieties, and of course, modernization, which is really code for R&D, a little bit of S&T. It's, it's that account. Modernization has become a useless term in Washington um, in terms of nobody uses it the same way. When I refer to it and the way they're referring to it in the department is, is research and development. I think those are the really big wins. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if I jump in, um, I, I think, you know, number one, the most important thing they did that they got right is they protected the crown jewels of our modernization programs, uh, the things that we, we cannot do without, regardless of what you're doing with strategy, regardless of what you're doing with the overall top line budget. Um, they sustained funding for the B-21 program, uh, the new bomber, uh, GBSD, the new ICBM, the Columbia class sub you know, the sea leg of the nuclear triad. Um, and they, they sustained investment and increased investment in some cases in our uh, enabling space capabilities. Now, I would point out that, you know, it, it often gets misreported. It's looking like it's a huge jump up in the Space Force budget. It is an increase, but a lot of that increase is just transfers of existing funding from space activities that were still outside the Space Force. So, that is one of the things that they're doing right here as they're consolidating space programs, space capabilities, and space-related units into the Space Force. So there's still more of that they need to do, um, but the you know jump in the Space Force budget, a lot of that just represents consolidation of things that were already going on. Um, but I, I am impressed at the overall funding level that we're seeing for missile warning satellites, $4.7 billion for 
uh, our next gen OPIR and the Space Development Agency uh, missile sensing layer. Um, they're putting those things together. It's a robust level of funding. As we get to see more details about that, it'll be interesting to see what kind of hybrid architecture they've decided on. Uh, but I, I think there are a lot of good news stories, things here that they, they did write that they protected the crown jewels. I have to applaud them on that, right? I mean, the biggest criticism for our, any of our missile defense plans was we didn't have that space-based layer uh, that you need for hypersonic defense. And there's also money for a new interceptor. And what's also uh, admirable is the speed with which they want to move uh, in being able to at least start demonstrating, experimenting, uh, demonstrating, and then fielding capability. Mackenzie, uh, let me go to you. What, what did you not uh, like, right? I mean, there was the retirement of 24 ships. The Navy has been talking about ships, ships, ships. It, it's got littoral combat ships it wants to retire that still have that brand new ship smell, amphibious uh, uh, ships uh, as well to be retired to submarines that go into that mix. The F-22, there are those who look at that and go, hey, wait a minute, this is the most, still the most capable combat aircraft we have. Uh, why are you retiring them? They are trying to retire the 30 longest tooth versions. Uh, and it's Hard to imagine, but this, this is a 30-year-old program now at this point, right? Talk to us about what you didn't like, and Todd, want to get your sense as well uh, about specific elements that, not, that neither of you liked. Sure. And I think, actually, littoral combat ship and F-22 are good examples of the budget squeeze. So, again, this masquerading effect, even though the number went up, it actually uh, goes down because of inflation for the services. And you see these um, these trade-offs and these losers. So littoral combat ship, the reason they're retiring those specific nine uh, is because they don't want to pay to fix the bad combining gear. And for the F-22 trainers they want to retire, right? You could pay to then convert them to basically combat coded tails. Just a, it's a modest investment, I think, overall relative to that capability in both cases. Um, particularly the Navy, I was stunned by the briefer's remarks at how many ships are forward right now. I mean, it's remarkable. And so, yes, so in both cases, these capital intensive services, the Navy and the Air Force, um, in both cases, they're seeking to build far fewer of those capital assets than they're going to retire in one year. Congress will roundly reject that, as I think they should. Are there cases where they should support the services? Of course, absolutely. A10, there's, there's actually many others. Um, but then there's just too many dogs that don't bark. You know, there's too many capability gaps where... Uh, the services said, you know, we got to let go of this, this um, very tangible capability in hand in the hopes of an award or potentially a technology or something coming later this year or next year. For example, here I'm screaming AWACS, um, but there, that was not the only example again. And so, you know, that's, if you, all you got to do is read report language. The Hill will not accept that either. But again, it does show how tight money really was overall. Todd? Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the disappointments are, as McKinsey said, they're the dogs that didn't bark, uh, things that at least right now with the initial materials that they're putting out, um, I, don't, I don't yet see uh, a compelling, credible way ahead on JADC2. Uh, maybe it's hidden there in the details, but that should have been front and center and uh, what they were briefing. Um, you know, why are they continuing to vet, invest in Army future vertical lift? I want to see a compelling justification for that. You know, how does that how is that going to play uh, in a fight with China or with Russia? Um, tell me why that's strategically important. Um, and and I, I do have especially especially in the wake of the Ukraine uh, the war in Ukraine, right, where Russia is yeah. losing a lot of helicopters. We've discussed that on the program as well. 
yeah, I mean, you know, helicopters aren't that useful at all in a, a even a mildly contested operating environment, uh, as Russia has learned uh, or is learning. Um, and, yeah, and so I, you know, I want to see justifications for these things. They're putting $1.2 billion uh, into R&D uh, for the Army Future Vertical Lift Program. Uh, why did they make that decision? Uh, and at the same time, you know, cutting the F-22 trainers. I, I think the cut of the F-22 trainers, uh, I think in hindsight, they may regret that. The Air Force may regret that if Congress actually allows it to go through. Um, because what is the follow-on? Um, there, there's a strong vote uh, of a lack of confidence in the F-35 program uh, of wanting to wait until they get that block four capability rolled out. So they're cutting back on the Air Force's planned procurement uh, of F-35s. Keep in mind, at this point in the program, they're supposed to be up to 60 per year of the F-35A for the Air Force. Uh, they're budgeting not for 48, but for 33 uh, in this request. Um, so, you know, it does beg the question of what is next? Uh, what is the NGAD program going, going to deliver? Um, it's hard to have a lot of confidence in that program when we know so little about it. And Secretary Kendall has already come out and said the unit cost of NGAD is going to be even higher than the F-35. So uh, I, I don't know that the Air Force has a, a really credible way ahead here on their future fighter fleet. Um, and, and, you know, what is their way ahead? How are they going to get an affordable uh, force structure that can deliver them the capabilities they need? I, I just don't see that in this budget, at least not yet. Um, I, I just want to point out that at uh, the Air Warfare Symposium, Secretary Kendall made a comment that I think a lot of people may have missed, that the F-35 is the low end of that high-low mix. Uh, and obviously, right, I mean, Todd, this is going to be a bigger, longer-ranged, more capable F-22 equivalent jet that we're looking at, as opposed to, you know, the, the single engine, shorter range aircraft that the F-35 uh, is. And I just want to put this note in because I was talking to an Army aviator. Uh, their, their point is um, the United, United States would be fighting uh, differently than Russia is. And uh, therefore, with a sort of a better strategy, you're not going to end up losing as many helicopters as the Russians are, given that they're, you know, they, it was kind of a bit of a piecemeal uh, in, in invasion. Um, Mackenzie, how do you think Congress is going to respond? And did the administration actually offer up, was the administration smart or politically savvy enough to offer up all of the things that they knew that Congress is likely to make money available for, right? I mean, was this sort of a cunning move knowing that, hey, Congress is going to give me 40 plus billion dollars anyway, and I buy back most of that which I have offered up. I mean, is, is that sort of the easiest way to look at it? I know cynically? that's the, yeah, I, fair enough. That's usually, that is the game. And and Congress actually- Really? Called, really? <laughs> oh, God, and there is no Santa year, Claus. I know, right? And in last year's defense bills, Congress was just excoriating of the Navy in this regard, basically saying, you play games and we're not going to let you play them anymore. Uh, uh, like with DDGs, for example, this, you know, you specifically are targeting things, you know, that we cherish. Um, and so it's obviously that jig has long been up. We know that. But honestly, in this case, having spent all day Friday in the building talking to leadership, it appears that way. But I will give them credit behind the scenes. You know, their program review, all their strategies were done 
in the late fall ish, you know, there were some tweaks, not because of Ukraine, but just, you know, sort of finishing touches from, from the fall through the winter. And they use those to, you know, I think they would say rigorously inform their budget choices and trade-offs. So, you know, I don't like their trade-offs for the most part, but I'm not going to accuse them of having uh, lacking analysis behind them. Oh, and then where the hill's going to go. Right. So, well, we've already seen a pretty swift, um, reaction by key congressional leadership on the Republican side, focused mostly on inflation, but also, you know, members are struggling with a classified national defense strategy. How can you be sure that the military is buying it? And most members, shocker, don't make time to go view classified documents, even on the committees of jurisdiction. So that's going to be a kind of an interesting issue. Um, but they're going to continue to focus on inflationary not uh, effects, not just for 23, but what holes didn't get filled um, from the lost buying power of 22, even though, again, the secretary tried to fill those holes. Uh, and then, you know, kind of where are the shortfalls relative to the threats? And then, you know, that, again, we go back to kind of the dogs that didn't bark. But then I do believe that Congress is going to want to find bipartisan, you know, consensus on a couple of priority areas. I mean, just look at what's moving through the Senate this week, right, on the CHIPS Act, or not the CHIPS, but that's what we're calling it shorthand. But AI and shipyard investments above where the department's going, things like that. Um, so it's not it's not just a big fight there. I think there's going to be thoughtful work ahead. Todd. Yeah, no, I, I mean, obviously, there are those political games going on here where you propose retiring something, you know, good and well, Congress is likely to add it back in. But I do agree with McKinsey. I think these are. Um, you know, um, uh, serious proposals. I think that for the most part, these are things, I, you know, elements of the force structure that DOD has made a serious decision that they do want to move on from, uh, like retiring the A-10s, uh, you know, retiring, you know, more of the, the tankers, the older tankers. Um, these are things that, that the Air Force has to do when it comes to ship, you know, the shipbuilding plan and the uh, uh, ship retirements. Um, I mean, the Navy's got difficulties there. The biggest one is they've got to have a, a credible 30-year shipbuilding plan that they deliver to Congress. And if they don't give Congress one, Congress is going to come up with one for them. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that the, you know, they are being genuine when they request these uh, divestments. Um, you know, there's strategic rationale, serious rationale that's behind them. But Congress ultimately has the final say. And if the department does not do a good job uh, of communicating why they want to make these decisions and why this is in the best interest of the nation and the military, um, they're going to lose out again. And Congress is going to override them and put the funding back and, and perhaps even put more restrictions on them, requiring them to keep some of these assets. Um, so they, the, really, the onus is on DOD now, and particularly the senior military leadership, uh, to go make the case uh, on the Hill. In talking to folks, uh, we all know Susanna Bloom. Obviously, she's uh, heading Cape now. Uh, and there is the sense that some of the analysis is actually quite good, right? Uh, Kath Hicks, uh, Todd, uh, uh, used to work for Kath at CSIS. Uh, she is very strategic and has tried to drive some hey, look, those are capabilities we might need, but ultimately it's the services that end up winning, right? I mean, it is not as much of a dictatorship <laughs> as uh, as some people would like it, right? And the services say, hey, this is my money. This is how I'm going to spend it. I know you're skeptical, but this is, this is one of my priorities uh, ultimately. Let me ask you a question about messaging, right? After listening to all of those budget briefs yesterday, it was astonishing to me how often 
the administration was sort of burying the lead. And we saw this with Pacific Defense Initiative and other things the administration has done. It sometimes is not taking credit for that which it does or use these opportunities to make as cogent a case, right? why we have to make change, why we may no longer need these things. By the way, I don't think the Navy should ever be allowed to retire LCS. It spent money. It said it needed it, right? You, you don't reward bad behavior over the course of 20 years. And this money could have been spent elsewhere. You have them make them work. But do you guys think that there is a messaging problem here in how the administration is selling this stuff, at least publicly? Yeah, no, I mean, I think there is a, a messaging gap here, um, but that's nothing new. <laughs> the Department of Defense, you know, does not generally excel uh, in public messaging. Um, I think that they were particularly hampered this time by the delay in the National Defense Strategy, the Missile Defense Review, and the Nuclear Posture Review, and all, you know, all of these uh, strategy-related documents. Um, I think that if they had been released back in January or even in February, uh, they could have been, you know, explaining the rationale, the thinking, the priorities in advance, uh, and then there wouldn't be as many surprises in the budget or as many things that they need to explain. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that does handicap them a bit. Um, so now they're instead of getting ahead of the conversation ahead of the public debate, uh, they're behind it. Uh, and so they're going to be doing cleanup for a while now. Mackenzie? I would agree. I think it was really disjointed, I think is the term I would use. You know, it, it, it had the sort of unifying message of integrated deterrence, campaigning, sure, the sort of three themes under the unclass strategy. Um, but, but then beyond that, it was the second year row of record research and development. Okay. And, you know, it's like, that's not a period, that's a comma, what comes after that to do what? And so I, I just, to do integrated deterrence, well, okay, it didn't stop the invasion of Ukraine. So, I mean, you know, we can debate integrated deterrence, and I think Congress certainly will. Um, and, and just, therefore, it was disjointed, each service seemed to go off in its own direction of what the theme was for this year. And that will make it a slightly more difficult, I agree, to sell it on Capitol Hill. Well, and, uh, and also I would point out, they, they keep citing that, oh, record level uh, of R&D spending in the RDT&E budget. Um, but you look at the, uh, the five-year plan, uh, and it's going to peak and then decline in the future years. So there needs to be an explanation for that. Is it that, you know, we're pushing these things through development and they're going to be transitioning into production? Okay, that's a good story. Say that, talk about it, right? Give examples of programs that you're going to be pushing through development into production over the next five years. Um, I think that you know we'll see some of those details emerge when they release all the budget justification documents, but that would have been that would have been something I, I wanted to lead with, right? Not just that we've got a high level of R and D one year. Uh, but that we have a plan for how to push these technologies into our force over the next five years. Uh, very quickly, because uh, I know our time is short, uh, what are the three things you think uh, Congress should be prioritizing, uh, Mackenzie and then Todd? Well, because the administration you know, really continued a lot of themes from their first budget into their second, I think you'll also see Congress continue their concerns from the Biden first budget into the second. And by that, I mean, again, we already know number one, number two, and number three will be inflation. 
better understanding the assumptions, updating those with realistic ones and uh, more current ones, and then filling holes from 22 and fiscal year 23. Yes, I know we're not in 23 yet, but nonetheless, um, the expected ones ahead. Uh, then, of course, the threat environment, you know, uh, not just the European and Pacific deterrence initiatives, but, uh, you know, looking more deeply into shortfalls and capability gaps like the kinds we've already talked about today for those regions, but really globally and across the, the three Army, Navy and Air Force services in particular. And then readiness. Well, I know the department tried hard, actually, to to prioritize readiness like they tried to prioritize R&D. It's still... I think just based on current operations, right? You know, in my mind, I'm pretty sure it's a record number of Navy ships forward. Air Force is even kind of mildly surging fighters and bombers to Eastern Europe Army. Unclear how long those 10,000 forces are going to stay over there, but it looks like a while. Just with based on current operations, you know, readiness actually continues to matter. And so when you look at those accounts, the headline is good. The details are, are not good. And I think the Hill will focus on that as well. Done. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's going to be inflation, 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 um, and all the different ways that that's affecting the defense budget. Um, but I think Congress also is going to focus a lot on the proposed divestments. And what Congress has got to see uh, is that, you know, in each of these cases, that the military departments have another capability that is equivalent or better already in hand. They do not want to see the department divest the capability without already having a replacement um, that's as good or better at hand. Um, so I, I think that's what we'll see a lot of focus on, uh, you know, in congressional hearings and, of course, shipbuilding, uh, strong shipbuilding Congress. Uh, I'm sorry, a strong uh, shipbuilding caucus on the Hill. Uh, and they're going to scrutinize all of the Navy's plans and rip it apart and give them a new plan. Um, that they have to live with. So uh, it's going to be an interesting budget season for sure. We look forward to having both of you on uh, to give us color commentary as we go through the process. Mackenzie and Todd, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. It was great having you guys both back on. And uh, next time we've got to do it with Gordon on as well so that we can really bring the band back together again. At all times. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Fago. Thanks, Todd. Good times. The BCA. You're the only person who would say that, Todd. Uh, good times. <laughs> And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is my good friend, Richard Amalafia of Aerodynamic Advisory, uh, one of the world's leading aerospace uh, consultancies, uh, and he is also one of the regular gang of three, the three musketeers that are on our uh, Sunday uh, business program. Richard, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Great to be back with you, Vago. Thanks. Uh, in, indeed, uh, indeed, a pleasure. And, and we didn't want to wait all the way until Sunday uh, to discuss this uh, big news. Boeing made a management announcement yesterday. Uh, Leanne Corrette, a uh, longtime head of uh, Boeing Defense Space and Security, is going to be retiring from the company. It's a post that she's held since 2016 uh, when she replaced Chris uh, Chadwick. She's going to be replaced by uh, Ted Colbert, who is uh, the global services boss at uh, Boeing. Uh, that's a bit of a kingmaker uh, job. Obviously, his predecessor, Stan Deal, became uh, head of Boeing commercial uh, airplanes. And Stephanie Pope, uh, who's been with Boeing uh, for a couple of decades uh, on the finance side of the of the house, will be replacing Ted uh, at um, uh, Boeing uh, Global Services. Talk to us a little bit about what these uh, changes mean 
Um, you know, obviously the company uh, does have challenges across uh, its uh, commercial portfolio, as we discuss often. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what these changes mean. Yeah, I think the best way to look at BDS right now is a company that's had a fair degree of, uh, of sales success uh, with a couple of limits and uh, technically not so much at all. Um, you know, basically there's two big headwinds. One is on program execution that simply been seen as under-resourced. And that has also shown up in new program bids like LRSB and whatever else. The general view is that they simply don't have enough engineers either to create new programs or to execute on existing ones. The result has been a litany of cost overruns and delays and major snafus, most recently, of course, Air Force One on top of MH-139, T-7, and of course, worst of all, KC-46. So technically, not so much. On the other hand, you can't help but respect the level of commercial success there. Um, you know, getting the F-15s back in the budget, getting E-7 uh, wedge tail for AWACS replacement aircraft for the Air Force, probably. Um, you know, a couple of issues. More more know. P8s, right? I mean, the, the Navy continues to buy the P8. Yeah, the P8 has been a success and, and it's one of the rare technical successes too. So that's not a bad thing. But for the most part, you could call it a track record of technical disappointment and commercial success. And obviously there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done across the board. While everybody has a lot of respect for Leanne uh, Corrette, she's a terrific person and, uh, you know, has always been uh, a delight to cover and to work with. Obviously, uh, the, you know, the, the business does face some fundamental uh, challenges, although I will agree with you, right? I mean, this budget uh, looks very strong. There are questions about what the future looks like uh, for uh, the company. What do you think Ted Colbert's priorities need to be when he takes the job? I think engineering, pure and simple. And it's not too different from the commercial side, you know, BCA. Basically, they have underinvested and it shows up in their independent R&D budget uh, consistently that basically that gone into programs with a lack of resources. They've shown a depressing reliance on other companies for design work. Again, LRSB to a great extent, T7, of course, MH139. You know, it's it basically it's somebody else's product, but manufactured by Boeing. Um and they need to change that because the next round of program competitions, most notably NGAD, but also FAXX, are going to have a heavy reliance on new product creation and engineering. And they're going to be consistently disadvantaged in these bids for past performance. And they're going to see, be seen as under-resourced. So stamping out copies of airframes that have been in production from, for decades and making money on that is very different from winning new high technology programs. I know we're going to talk more about this uh, on Saturday, uh, but what's Leanne's uh, legacy at BDS? Again, you know, folks uh, like her a lot. She's a tough businesswoman, uh, had a lot of success uh, over her uh, career. KC-46 uh, has been a challenge. There have been a couple of uh, losses, but then under her tenure, also some significant wins, right? MQ-25 was a significant win. T-7 was a significant win. Uh, and, and she is positioning the products that they have well, for the future, right? You can say there is the P8, which continues, you mentioned, uh, you know, continues to bear fruit, setting up the E7 uh, as a successor to the E3 and other special mission equipment, uh, special mission lines. And then you even have Ghost Bat, right? Which is, which is a program uh, that Boeing is making inroads on. Uh, so even though there might be challenges elsewhere in the company, 
it would appear that actually her patch has has performed pretty pretty well. But how do you think history is going to remember her? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, a very likable person, no question there, and you know, a real people person. Um, on the other hand, it, it sort of represent that represents that what, you know, increasing bifurcation at Boeing between uh, commercial and technical outcomes. Uh, commercially, you know, no question, did really well. I mean, you know. It, Yes, the F-18 is now out of the budget, but they kept it in for so many years. The F-15 has come roaring back. As you say, Ghost Bat, that's kind of interesting. MQ-25, T-7. But on the other hand, there is this pattern of under-resourcing followed by losses. Uh, and again, there have been a series of those. Um, and most recently, Air Force One. Um, that's not the best part of the legacy here. So I, I think the challenge for the new folks is to say, all right, look, it's this whole, you know, it, it's all out, an outgrowth of a 20 year pattern of Boeing, you know, return on net assets. That means you minimize your capabilities and resources in order to make your financial returns look that much better. That needs to be rethought. And engineers and technical people need to be thought of as a valued resource. So they stop having these cost overruns and serious delays that have been starting to come back and bite them in terms of how the customer perceives them. So I, again, it's a, it's a strange mix, a very good commercially, not so good technically. And what does Stephanie have to do at, Blo uh, at Boeing uh, Global Services? When VGS was created years ago, they had something like 15 billion in revenue and they wanted to get to 50 billion. Obviously there's been a series of major stumbles on the way, not entirely their fault, far from it. Obviously market headwinds are enormous, especially on the commercial side. Um, but basically just growing that aftermarket revenue. And on the defense side, they've made decent progress there with major upgrade programs for existing fleets, say in uh, Saudi Arabia or Japan. And they need to keep that going. You know, one of their, I guess, uh, most important assets is this enormous fleet of long-lived airframes, particularly F-15s, but Apaches and whatever else. So how to keep a steady stream of high value, high profit upgrade programs going internationally. Uh, let me take you uh, really quickly to uh, the budget. Um, and uh, at the top of the show, we heard from uh, Todd uh, and Mackenzie. I just wanted to get your take on some of the U.S. Air Force's budget uh, decisions and what you thought of them. Yeah, the biggest one, of course, is the trade-off between F-15 EXs and the F-35. And I you know, obviously a part of the narrative is that they know they're going to get plus up with F-35s, but I think there's also kind of a industrial bandwidth trade-off. Basically, they've made it very clear at the program level, at the Lockheed Martin level, that for the next few years, they're capped at 156 uh, F-35s. And in order to make way for the near avalanche of export orders, it's pretty clear that some of that bandwidth needs to be freed up. And the F-15, by contrast, there are no such constraints. You know, they want to go from two a month to three a month to even four a month, conceivably, not a problem at all. So basically, I think the Air Force is getting what it can now um, because the F-35 space isn't available for both themselves, the other services, and most of all, the international allies that suddenly want to rearm against a resurgent Russian threat. Uh, and uh, right, I mean, for all of its attributes, the F-15 is a, is a great medium bomber bomb truck, right? It can carry a lot of ordnance very fast, do it really well, and is, you know, they've got a force of a couple of hundred F-15s in inventory, right? So it's a, it's a cheaper force to manage. 
Well, you know, this is a tremendously contentious issue, as you know, having covered it very closely. You know, but if you look at the traditional metrics of aircraft performance, that is to say, you get away from the F-35s, a rather impressive mission equipment package and low observability, and you look towards, you know, time to climb, speed, payload, range, all those other traditional metrics, the F-15 looks really good. Right, uh, ex- exactly. And last question, uh, how big is the F-35 win in Canada today? Well, something of a foregone conclusion. It was pretty clear they had the Gripen in just because, well, some people like the Gripen and, you know, it represented competition. But once Boeing shot itself in the foot with the trade complaint years ago and basically got the Super Hornet eliminated, it was going to be the F-35. Now, having said that, it's a pretty big win. It's one of the biggest F-35 export wins in, in some time. But you know, you wonder what they're going to do with this embarrassment of riches. I mean, already with the German, Finland, uh, you know, Poland orders, and, and of course, uh, Switzerland too, and talk of Romania and lots of other people suddenly expressing interest, they had busted way above the 156 mark on the skyline in the second half of the decade. Will they be able to ramp up to meet this? Again, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches, uh, I, I would hope, for the sake of all the customers that want to replace their aging fleets of 70s and 80s aircraft, that they'll be able to get it to uh, 180 or 190 a year. Um, I also want to point out to the audience, right, uh, Canada was one of the original observers on this program, right? I mean, so it would have really been shocking if Canada did not end up getting the F-35, given that there is uh, important Canadian uh, industrial participation on the program as well. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as my Canadian friends have pointed out, you know, there's this sort of weird pattern of a government coming in saying, we're going to do something completely different, and then taking a bunch of years to go back to doing exactly the same thing they were going to do. They did this with the EH-101. <laughs> they did this with the F-35. You know, I'm sure there are other examples. It, you know, you have to go a long way out of your way to come back to the same point, ultimately. Richard, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so very much for joining us. Looking forward to having you back on again on Sunday uh, for a full analysis of this along with Ron and Sash. Thanks very much and bon voyage in the meantime. Thanks very much, Bago. Great to be on. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.